Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Miami. We're going to be talking about evolutionary psychology today, real kind of foundation of of the podcast and we haven't had a evolutionary psychology episode in some time so i'm very excited to talk with my guest deborah lieberman is joining me today deborah thank you very much for, thanks for having me i reached out to you a while ago you were recommended by uh by some past guests marty hazelton and kathleen uh, boss, mm-hmm. a couple of my favorite uh, uh, people in academia, and and so uh, both of them independently recommended you, and then I reached out, and I think at the time it didn't work out, and what great timing because this time you were available, and you have a a brand new book. Did your when did your book come out? It was officially published and out August second. August second, yeah, so a month ago. This is fantastic. So it's a brand new book that uh, that we're gonna dive into, and it's called Objection: Discussed Morality and the Law. And listeners, I mean, this is this is just in the wheelhouse of this pod. This is if you like this podcast. This is uh, the kind of book for you. I read like 10 pages of it and emailed back Deborah immediately and was like, hey, is there any chance that you could do two episodes? Because I think <laughs> we're going to have so much to talk about. So I, I'm just so excited. And that's what we're doing. Two episodes. I already pulled the uh, the ripcord, something, some metaphor to uh, the parachute of, if I wouldn't have mentioned two episodes and say our conversation goes poorly, I could have just cut it short and out. But I'm You're so confident <laughs> that this is going to be such a great conversation that I'm already telling, I've never done this before. I've never done a, planned on doing a two-part episode ahead of time, but this is this is just so terrific. And unfortunately, your co-author, Carlton Patrick, let's give him a shout out because he couldn't make it. We were hoping that he was, he's just not in town at um at the same time maybe maybe next time i'm through i'll get you both on but actually since he's not here uh, uh be honest with it did he do most of the heavy lifting deborah or was it <laughs> well i will tell you that the first 10 pages you read and, and got hooked with uh were likely all him so <laughs> <laughs> oh no you got, you got the wrong, wrong one <laughs> um First off, I haven't even finished the book because I I used to beat myself up for being a slow reader, but the better the book is, the longer I kind of chew on it for because there are so many sections in this where I would just read a paragraph and I would just stop and think about that. I've been writing jokes based on it and it's a, a lot of the ways in which you guys have uh, phrased things is similar to how I try to explain things to people and so uh so this is if there's any listeners out there that you're like this is my first here we are podcast episode you're going to have your minds blowing into pieces today i like to build things up just way too much just in 
<laughs> just wonderful, <an> unreasonably <laughs> high expectation is what I want to set for you, Deborah. That's good. If you blow it, that's no reflection of the book, everybody. If, if Deborah just completely blows this as a guest, the book's still fantastic. And you well, I'm going to have to see your your stand up routine if you're basing some jokes on this book. <laughs> um, oh, you know, I can probably share with you some some of the content as as, as we, we work, go and we start working through. I'll I'll maybe get to a a few of the things I think. Later on, some of the stuff that I haven't read yet, but I have a feeling I I know some of the uh, the work that it's based on. I have so we'll get to that. So I'm I opened up the table of contents just to make sure that I'm kind of setting things up in a in a natural order um, because I really one of the things that um, I've been thinking so much about is just emotions. I try to explain uh, to people what emotions are and there are these kind of evolved um cognitive drives that we have and it's uh it's it's a really tough thing for people to wrap their heads around just in general i you know i i i often i i toured with a show about psychedelics um for a little i like doing themed shows and probably the edgiest thing in the show was I would I would tell a bunch of psychedelic advocates that love is is just an emotion <laughs> it's just a driver meant to motivate certain behavior like no love's everything it's in the universe and it's floating around and it's the most important ever everything and it just broke their hearts and uh and, and people have a hard time understanding uh life i think in, in that way it's it's novel for them to hear it put this way so so can you set up for us a little bit about um i guess however you want to set it up the evolutionary framework and and getting into um what emotions are exactly well i can talk about what emotions are and that would give an idea of of what it is to be an evolutionary psychologist yeah so i view emotions as a type of software program they're a program mm-hmm. that evolved and regulate behavior. And they exist by virtue of the fact that they somehow helped in survival and reproduction in human ancestral times. So somehow they helped our ancestors survive, live to see the next day, find food, reproduce. Um, and and this is why we have a variety of different types of emotions. Now, I, I, I don't think that what I'm saying is completely controversial, but I I also don't think that it's, uh, I think that you can probably pick out a dozen different emotion researchers and ask them to start defining for you what an emotion is, and you'll get 12 different definitions. Mm. So, I mean, obviously, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt that this is one approach, but it's one approach I I wholeheartedly believe in. Well, it's also not terribly intuitive. No, it's not. And I think that's why your psychedelics would have uh, objected to it. It's really counterintuitive to think about the kinds of programs that would have evolved because you can think about why things exist. Um, And if you think about, so Richard Dawkins did a great job in his selfish gene talking about replicators and what kind of systems are likely to persist through time. And only those that are capable of surviving and reproducing um, are capable of Increasing in frequency in subsequent generations, things that tend to die off, things that tend to leave fewer offsprings, those features that caused those outcomes tend not to persist. 
And so if you think about emotions as a program that was subject to those same kinds of rules, it does seem kind of strange because you ask what an emotion is and it feels like something and and people, it's very hard to put words to what it feels like maybe. And so this kind of metaphysical sense of emotions gets in the way of understanding them as actual mechanical programs that are in the brain, very much like our visual system is processing information to create a a, a 3D visual world for us. We have emotion programs that are doing a variety of things. And this book focused on disgust. And so what what is disgust? And uh, a lot of folks have been asking about this. So Darwin was interested in this question. And we, so we, we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And we were interested in what makes people disgusted and why is this program here? Is it uniquely human? What is it doing? And how does it get into our moral sense and then sometimes into law? Yeah, this is so exciting. I mean, this is uh, we we are going to be quite the pair. You study disgust. I'm a comic. We're disgusting. Yes, you pedal in disgust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're just the perfect pair. Um, so I, I mean, I think a lot of people when uh, when they think about emotions, they think of these like kind of uh, uh, distractions or something that are that are in the way of thought these these they're like barriers that you need to get past to to have logical thought and to do this uh this great thinking stuff that we're that we're very proud of and and you know when you're when you're thinking when you're making a decision you don't want to get emotional. People will be like, "You're getting, you're getting emotional right now. That's inhibiting your ability to make a decision." When in fact, uh, uh, much of what's happening is our emotions are making most of the decisions and kind of teasing apart what is thinking and what is emotion is. Yes, yes, is a weird line to even be drawing anyway. So. A lot of folks have thought that emotion is the goo that mucks up the cognitive gears. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're emotional, then you're not thinking in any in any real sense. And emotions do guide thinking, and they do allow you to make decisions, oftentimes quite quickly or over, over the long haul. Um, but they're very specific kinds of decisions. So when you're in an emotional state, you're probably really good at thinking about certain types of things and making decisions about particular types of behaviors, uh, and but not all types of decisions are going to be uh, as easy when you're in an emotional state. But if I can just get back to the idea of how non-intuitive this idea is about emotions. Absolutely. I- and I, I've meant to – one thing that I didn't say yeah. before we recorded, I kind of consider this like a very conversation – like kind of a co-hosty situation. You're, you're welcome to steer this ship just as much as – as I am. I don't uh, know that so. I wouldn't be able to do that. So, <laughs> so, so yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I love it. It makes my job easier. If, if uh, all my questions are for is to, is to get whatever you want to say Let anyway. Let me tell out of you, you what I'd like yeah, to talk yeah, about. <laughs> I would, please. No, that makes my job so much easier. But I think it's, it's such an important point when it, we talk about emotions. Um, so for instance, the emotion of love. 
And in my class, I often use the example of, you know, my son. And the idea is when he is, he, when he needs me, if he's sick or he's fallen or he's hungry or he's, he's just, he needs me for some reason, that emotion of love and overwhelming love to go and help him, uh, it just exists. I'm not consciously thinking, he has so many of these genes of mine and the reason I'm doing this is because if I don't do this, then chances are he won't survive and then his fitness goes down and, and, and that circuitry won't, won't persist through the generations. No, I just feel this motivation to walk over, help, and assist. And there's a huge difference between why our emotions exist and how they make us feel to carry out the function for which they evolved. So you feel jealousy, you feel depressed, you feel disgusted or afraid, and you don't need to know why and what evolutionary right. consequence uh, came from doing that. You just behave. It just deploys. But the reason it deploys in thus and such manner is because on average it had beneficial effects on reproduction and survival in the past. But you need not know that. Right. If you were to kind of ask a, a bee about for advice on life or whatever, if you're, you know, you're making a cartoon and and there's a you go Honey into this yum. Bee, yeah. beehive and and it, it's got all of these nice decorative quotes stitched out for inspiration on the wall and it's like sometimes you gotta stop and smell the flowers and the it's a wonderful like kind of poetic uh way of looking at like but that's yeah. just because it's uh, the <laughs> the flowers have hijacked its reward system to <laughs> to help it spread along its po uh, its pollen and it's given it a, a little bit of uh, reward to do that, right? And and that's that's much of kind of how our decisions are are made. And then, but then, but a lot of what consciousness is is making up this very rich, poetic, uh, beautiful story of of why we're behaving the way that we do, which is which is more or less math over time. But it, <laughs> but that doesn't sound as pretty. No, it doesn't sound as pretty. <laughs> um. So. I mean, what what even is like what qualifies as an emotion? Because this is seemingly a subjective experience, and and um, I, we kind of have these agreed upon states. But even like, so I don't, but I don't necessarily even need to feel it to quote unquote be having or experiencing emo. I I I maybe had. I had some coffee uh, before coming over here today. That that coffee might make me a little irritable without me even knowing it. And uh, and then you might you might be like Shane, you're feeling a little. You you seem a little irritable. I don't even. I'm not consciously experiencing that. You're like you seem. A and I snap back. I am not here <laughs> in like the most irritable way. How dare you call me irritable? And I don't even realize. And then maybe in hindsight, I reflect back on that moment, and then I go like, "Oh, I was irritable at that time." And I'm not even experiencing it that time. I'm looking back on it and and uh, and seeing that. And, and so much of our like is is confusion uh an emotion because that's that's definitely something that's that's uh skating the line between you can't have confusion without a fair amount of thinking and like conscious processing going on there but there's there's some sort of a kind of a emotional quality to it so it gets really kind of confusing when we're 
Uh, I think you're asking some really interesting questions. Just, you know, what, what, what are the emotions? And the way I like to think about it as our emotions are kind of coordinated programs. So based on situations that our ancestors would have faced repeatedly over our over evolutionary history, we have a, a set of programs that deploy to solve whatever problem we happen to find ourselves in. So for instance, you have a predator looming. Um, there's a lot of processes that are uh, going to be involved in detecting whether a predator is present, whether it sees you, um, whether it's dead or alive, uh, whether it starts to approach. Um, and so there's going to be perceptual systems. There's going to be a lot of decision-making systems in terms of, uh, you know, determining, uh, so what's out there? Does it present a threat? And then what's available for safety? Are there other people around? Are there possible sticks that I can transform into weapons? There's a lot of different things that deploy in order to solve the problem of, of escaping a predator and living to see the next day. And and so fear, what we call fear or anxiety, um, is certainly a type of emotion, but it seems to be very tailored to escaping a, a threat, uh, a physical threat. And it changes the way you think about the world. Suddenly, you know, a cell phone is a possible weapon. You know, mm-hmm. a pen is a possible weapon. Um, and suddenly, you know, underneath the couch, it's not just a place for dust bunnies to gather. It's now a possible hiding spot. So you really do change the way you think about a variety of different things. And the real question is, even though in psychology, there's often been a divide between people talk about emotion as one thing and cognition as something else. But if you were to actually start to detail all of the things that have to happen for the fear response, starting from the perception of the thing out there. Where do you, in the brain, draw the line between, oh, we've just crossed over from perception into emotion, right? So where's the line demarcating or the system that demarcates this, you know, uh, cognitive processes versus emotional processing? And that has always seemed very strange to me. Instead, if you think about it as a software program that's, you know, obviously complex, it's drawing information from a variety of different systems. And for the case of fear, once, once you've detected a predator, suddenly now you have a variety of different different systems that are going to deploy. You're going to have, you know, behavioral programs, so things that are going to get the musculature moving, but specific types of muscles. Maybe stop, you know, pro- stop, um, you know, processing your food, your lunch. Um, probably sexual arousal should go way down. That would be strange if that got ramped up in, 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 in when you perceive a predator uh, looming. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wouldn't be strange if you saw a very attractive person looming, right? So, right. so the idea that you have systems that are turning on and turning off and coordinating in a manner, a very specialized manner, that somehow led to survival in the past. And so I would say yeah. that even, you know, confusion or worry, I mean, psychologists often use different category labels. Some are emotions, some are moods, some are states, mm. affective states. And to me, I just, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, no, no, no. If, if we talk about it in terms of a software program, and and put our job as trying to figure out what information is processed in order to solve this particular problem, then we don't have to worry about what we call it. And we can just start getting down to the business of detailing the specifications of the system. Hmm. Yeah. And, and then these, we still kind of, e- even if we're in a drastically different environment, uh, we're still kind of drawing upon this same system that has been built over time to say... Uh, fear, anxiety about a predator. And now I have, I'm on stage 
last night and there's uh you know a couple people on their cell phone in the in the front row like through my whole show <laughs> and i'm experiencing oh, no. this same anxiety and anger the sorts of things that in our ancestral past would have been used in completely different situations long before the advent of the of the cell phone and and uh and and now i'm you know my my it completely killed my erection and and i <laughs> i had and i'm like how do i deal with this situation i'm sure like my face is probably getting a little red and and this is uh you know this if I sit there and and think about, well, this this person is um, not paying attention to the to the show, uh, and so that's that's a little hurtful toward me. But then also, it's being a distraction to the room, and I'm seeing other people noticing their screen, and so now it's pulling attention away from me. And this is this threat in this social environment, and and how do I uh, fix this without like if I'm too harsh, then it might be oh a, a, a bit of an overkill. It might make people uncomfortable. And how do I have this? You know what? And another comic could so. I think I might be doing these more sophisticated calculations or really breaking down exactly why I feel the way that I, but I'm still experiencing the same emotion that any comic that's completely oblivious to any of this research is, is feeling toward that exact same situation. You know, well, first I want to find out what you actually did. Um, But, but before, but you raise a really interesting point, which is you could know all that you want to know about emotions. You could, uh, you know, you could know it all. And the thing is, is that if your friend pisses you off or doesn't call you, doesn't invite you on a trip um, or your spouse forgets your birthday, it's it's you're not thinking in the terms of, well, they didn't value my welfare as highly as I wanted them to. And the reason I'm feeling this way is because it will potentially increase the way they value me more in the future because they see I'm going to potentially impose costs. No, you're just pissed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could know all you want about all of these systems from A to Z. And it looks like that type of explicit knowledge doesn't really affect, in most cases, how you feel. And, and actually, the study of kinship, which is a whole other um, strand of research uh, that's related to disgust, but you could, I mean, how do we know who our kin are? We use very specific kinds of information, social information, to figure out and infer this person has a good probability of being a close genetic relative. And it's not done consciously. Mm-hmm. And so but what is interesting is that, you know, if someone knocked on, so you know your your sibling is your sibling. Uh, our research suggests that, you know, living together from very early childhood. The longer you live together with someone from birth, the mind naturally tags that individual as a type of close genetic relative and then ratchets up in the brain somewhere, this estimate of relatedness. But that causes you, you're going to want to help them out, but you're also going to stay away from them sexually now. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that if you don't have this information and it, how do you know if you're related to someone, if someone knocks on your door and says, hey, you know, the man you've been married to for uh, 10 years, 12 years, uh, you know, he happens to be your your brother. And, and the thing is, does that change the way you think about him? And it's just not clear that that type of explicit knowledge would change your sexual attraction toward that person might certainly change whether you have a child with that person but in terms of wanting sex yeah i mean people are gonna talk about it's gonna change how your neighbors feel about (laughs) you (laughs) who else knows well that's a whole other story in terms of the social condemnation which is a huge deal in terms of of why we uh 
why we do what we do, why we why we profess that things are are right or wrong. Yeah, and we're going to be getting all into that, of course. We are taking a quick break to restore that old attention span and do a little cross-promotion. There's a brand new podcast on Starburns Audio. That is the podcast network that Here We Are is on. All sorts of fantastic podcasts on it, including the new one called Pen Pals with Daniel and Rory. Comedians Rory Scoble and Daniel Van Kirk respond to letters sent in to you on any topic under the sun from freeway etiquette to free will, from mental health Humanities, you name it. Rory Scovel, I've known for years. A hilarious comic. I don't actually know Daniel personally. He's super funny on this podcast. I might write in, Daniel, tell me a little bit about your background and about yourself. You can write in anything that you want, and they'll approach each letter with candor, levity, and sincerity. It's a comedy podcast, but it doesn't shy away from real topics. And even if it's a heavy subject, they use humor to work through it. This podcast is about connecting with people. We all need a bit more of that. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of this hilarious new podcast. Subscribe to Pen Pals on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, as you're talking about kin selection, how is it the kind of, because I, I don't think, um, and I've seen this example before of the, I don't remember the exact details, but, but where there was um, kind of some communal. The Israeli uh, kibbutz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can you explain that? I'm not sure we've ever talked about that before. And I, I see that pop up once in a while when, when people are discussing how we determine what a who is kin and who isn't. Sure. So if so the question is how do we figure out who our close genetic relatives are and the hypothesis is that something about co-residence duration seeing other individuals being cared for by the same parental figures throughout early childhood is a cue um that the the mind naturally uses to figure out and carve the world uh, among siblings and non-siblings for instance relatives and non-relatives and one of the great natural experiments and test cases of this and so i should mention that this the, the hypothesis about childhood co-residence duration uh, being a cue to kinship was first proposed by Edward Westermark. And he said something about early childhood association leads to a sexual aversion later on in, in, in development, later on in adulthood. And so the Israeli kibbutz ended up being a fantastic test case for this because here you had kids who were not, in fact, genetically related. So these are genetic non-relatives who are living together in these peer groups. And so what happened on the Israeli kibbutzim is that children who were born around a particular time were put into the same peer peer house uh, or, or child's house. And they were typically in a house with maybe 12 to 18 other kids, all born within the same around the same time, give or take a few months. And they were cared for by the same caretakers. And they were raised alongside one another uh, until adulthood. Typically, they had to go into military service. So uh, they left around age 18. And so researchers like Joseph Sheffer have gone in and said, well, let's look and see the marriage patterns here. And he found, lo and behold, that children who had lived together for the majority of the first six years of life tended not to marry one another. So I was very curious about this because I had started thinking about and doing research on how sexual aversions develop among genetic siblings. And I went to Israel and I went to go interview folks who had lived on the kibbutz because what had Mm. been uh, examined before was marriage. And as we know, marriage and sex, two different 
things completely. And so I was curious about, they might not marry, but the real question is, is are they sexually attracted to one another? So I went and I interviewed a whole bunch of folks. I asked them for each of the individuals that they lived and grew up with in the same peer house, uh, children's house, um, first how long they lived together, but then how sexually disgusted they were, but also how sexually attracted they were to each individual. But in addition to questions about sexual attraction, I asked about altruism because it, kinship should regulate two very different systems. The sexual, the mate choice system, so mm-hmm. keep steering clear of close genetic relatives, or at least taking into account relatedness as a factor when figuring out who to, who to marry and mate with. Um, but the other one is altruism. So who are you going to help? So preferentially helping individuals who have a greater probability of being a close genetic relative. And so I asked them how, how much they helped each of the individuals they grew up with. Um, and the pattern was that the longer individuals had lived together starting from birth, the more grossed out they were about having sex with each other, but also the nicer they were, the more they would do and extend mm-hmm. themselves in order to help them. Um, so it suggests that even among individuals who know they're not related, and even in a community such as the Israeli kibbutz where parents preferred their children to marry other people that in their children's house. Because remember, the parents know, okay, this is my son or my daughter. They're not confused. They're not saying, oh, maybe all 18 of these people are my kids, you know, sons and daughters. They know exactly which one is their son and daughter. So from their perspective, they're not confusing relatedness. But from the peers, the children's perspective, they be, their mind has been duped a little bit by virtue of the fact that they were exposed to this cue that was reliable in our ancestral environment, now it's being it's erroneously tagging all of these kids as possible siblings, and they find them less attractive. Mm-hmm. So even among genetically unrelated individuals, this cue has will up will cause people to find each other sexually aversive. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember I was kind of uh, raised around uh, um, some some friends that were roughly. My age, few, uh, few age different. So, uh, good friends of my parents. And so they would, I'd go over to their house and their mom would do a lot of babysitting. And we just spent a lot of time very early on in our, in our lives together. And, uh, definitely their, uh, their sister, the daughter is a couple years younger than me or a few years younger than me. Yeah, she's like about my girlfriend's age, and it, uh, but it, I mean, it wouldn't matter if she was the most symmetrical, most fertile person in the world. I would never think of her in that way. And and uh, and my guy friends that I grew up with at that time were were pretty very different people in adulthood, like politically and everything else. But we still have like. A bit of like a brotherhood-ish thing happening where they still come out to my shows all the time and we hang out. Even though if I were to meet, um, you know, a stranger or if I were to meet them as an adult as strangers, maybe I wouldn't have much of anything in common with them or or the same inclination to, you know, uh, hang out with them or, or be nice or whatever it might be. This is, and I'm sure that most people have some anecdotal thing like that in their lives. Grew up next to, um, had a neighbor of the opposite sex that they would just never picture in that way. Perhaps. Perhaps. So I want to, so I I don't want to get personal with me or with you. And so, but in general, what we tend to find is that guys don't have the disgust reaction 
to to the same extent that women do. Let me just put it that way. So uh, women, it's almost as if females, they detect kinship and, you know, with one small whiff of kinship, uh, they're just like, no way. Like, this this has turned an otherwise perfect partner into the person to avoid, like, the plague. Whereas for males in general, they tend not to get as sexually grossed out yeah. when you talk about things like sibling incest, even with their actual siblings and so forth. They're still not at ceiling like what you find females are on a lot of these scales. And this gets back to what are the well, costs? I'm, she might be more repulsed sexually to me <laughs> than I am to her. I, I'm sure that we is the case. don't have to go there. <laughs> I think we're still on the same page here, though. <laughs> So it's, uh, yes, though, this is... But that's an interesting point, that males are, I mean, males are less discriminating. Yes. I mean, I don't think this is any big secret. Um, But the idea is, where does this uh, propensity come from? The idea that males, uh, the costs associated with reproduction Mm -hmm. were just so much different uh, for males uh, than females over evolutionary history, not only in our species, but, you know, species-wide. You find that females tend to invest so much more in any one... Uh, event of reproduction that you tend to find that females of many species are far more discriminating. They're just much more likely to be choosier about who they mate with because for them, at least let's talk about humans for a second, you know, nine, 10 months, they're on the hook uh, plus two, three years of breastfeeding. And that was one child to get literally up and running. Um, And so for men, however, they could have a child, you know, with that one and then two minutes later with that one and then two minutes later another one and then and so there was just very different reproductive ceilings and costs associated with reproduction for men and women mm-hmm. i'm not saying men do that but the idea that they could potentially benefit from having uh more sexual There's a partners. lot of different strategies out there so. <laughs> depending on a certain situation and everything it, you know uh, speaking of that when when you talk about a personality, for example. So, so you you said before, uh, you know, we were talking about people try to break things down into emotions, moods, and all this stuff kind of gets foggy. I think about that a lot with personality. Like, how? What is a personality exactly? Is it is it like a stable state? I mean, you don't have to. Uh, I I'm just. I know this wasn't in your book. I'm just. We're just. We're just chatting here. We're just having a. As you're like. Ner- you scientists are so good at like I'm not going to talk about a thing that I haven't studied and don't know exactly what like I I mean it's but it is some sort of stable um sort of kind of emotional a default strategies that are happening over time and 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 you can have because you might have different personalities in different situations mm-hmm. too i might have a very different personality on stage than i do off stage and they might be it, it's it, no one's gonna be like who was that guy i don't even know it's not like two completely different things right but there's different there are different programs activating in those different situations and i i doubt that they're too far apart from what we would call emotions either i think it's just kind of this uh a more um uh it's almost like a a a series of emotional habits or something like that 
is, is kind of what shapes that into because these are things that we need to know we need to we need to understand when when you're when you're saying I, I mean i'm not talking need to know like from a testing scientific but i mean from a everyday each of us going out and living our lives mm-hmm. we need to when we're like defining someone's personality what we must be up to is kind of figuring out uh a series of predictions that we can make about this person's behavior uh, given x environment you know the general environment that we find ourselves in right yeah i like what i like how you put it in terms of their their these settings right different people have different settings Mm -hmm. and so it's all it's a very good question as to what creates those settings in each individual but for instance someone who angers very easily who believes that they should be treated uh far better and people should care about their welfare to you know to the exclusion of anybody else they're going to easily anger um but perhaps you're making me angry just talking about me like that on this podcast (laughs) and so but no i mean but they might be very different depending on who they're trying to get to care for them. Mm-hmm. So if there's a new mate they're trying to woo, they might be much more forgiving and not anger as easily uh, until, you know. They already got them. There you go. So, no, I, I like mm. I like how you put that in terms. It's very – so if you think of them as um, just settings, we all, we, all, we all have very different – not I don't know, very different, but we have different settings. And mm-hmm. we're – but I do believe there is a rhyme and a reason – Right. And there are factors that are going to be governing why you are expecting these people over here to care for your welfare more than that person and why, therefore, you're going to anger more over here than over there. By the way, when you do stand-up, mm-hmm. that's like your classroom. And so you should yeah. do it. What we do in the classroom is that, you know, I have students the first day come in with headphones mm-hmm. and like they're on their laptop. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. We don't do that here. <laughs> Well, they're so. they're meant to at a at a given comedy club. They're meant to make those announcements and stuff in the beginning about turning off the phones and everything else. And then and sometimes people just don't listen or like. And then you warn people. Like one thing is, uh, I I mean, you might I, I I'm sure uh, the uh, you really need to see live comedy sometimes because it is a sociological experiment. I of bet. A, it, it is. It is such a mind game. There's so many things going on. If you say shush somebody, very rarely does someone go like, oh, gee whiz. Oh, sorry, Was man. I being yeah. too loud and disruptive? Well, let me correct that behavior. <laughs> no, no. That is. That <laughs> is. Not in Miami. <laughs> no. <laughs> that it it will it often trigger anger it will and and people and the things that people convince themselves of like the the biggest the biggest kind of cliche um in um like the the kind of uh sometimes war between the comedian <laughs> comedy club and the bad audience members out there are and it's and it's usually people that have never been to a stand up comedy show before probably haven't seen live entertainment in a while and have been stuck behind uh watching a watching a screen where they're able to do and behave in whichever way they want without having to be mindful of others um uh but uh one big thing because people people get very defensive and then and it's never there and it's always 
I was laughing too hard. That's the big thing that we all, every comic and comedy club owner and stuff laughs about audience. An audience, you go to be like, hey, you're, because they're not, they're talking about like how work went for them yesterday or something like that. They're not even listening to the show, which would be fine enough. I don't, not everyone needs to listen to every word that I'm saying, but it's a real problem when others around them start, you know, uh, uh, being distracted by it. And now you see like a whole section of people just like, are you going to say anything to these? Uh, you know, um, but, but people will be like, I was laughing too hard. You're kicking me out for laughing too hard. That's not at all. That's never happened in the history of a comedy club. Has anyone laughed too hard and been kicked, and out. Been kicked out? No, no, no. You were doing something else, I assure you. But we all construct this narrative where we're like the hero and the yeah. other people are the, Naturally. The, the, the bad guy in it. There's a lot that's, that's to rough. be learned from the, and, and I mean, I, I don't think it's i don't think it's too terribly different than than standing up in front of a class and giving a talk or what i've I've helped out with uh with uh but they've all paid a lot to be there so oh that's true whereas some free riders you were talking about earlier not only did i not pay i don't care (laughs) yeah that's always the case you get a free show you'd think that would be like great i get more value out of this show than anyone else because i didn't even have to pay for it but that's not how that's not how it works they don't have a vested interest and they just like don't and they don't care well i wasn't going to go anyway i guess i'll check it out since it's free and then they go and and their disposition reflects the amount of money that they paid uh for (laughs) for the show but then you get can't just charge people more money assuming that they're going to like it more because then uh that's going to be a deterrent from people entering the show in the first place there's just a lot going on <laughs> there the the psychology of comedy is is uh is is pretty fascinating and sometimes very discouraging um, but but all of these all these complicated things are a lot of it uh i i'm probably going to use the word counterintuitive and things similar to over and over again because this is uh what when i mentioned earlier i like i would read a paragraph and then just have to stop and here's an example of that because this is if if there's listeners out there that are like well shane you already sold us on evolutionary psychology biology we get it we read a couple of books it's interesting we got it why I I don't need to read another book about it. You do, listeners. This uh, because even uh, even though I kind of knew this stuff, it had been a while since because we talk about all sorts of different topics on the show, and I I I put aside my knowledge in certain areas for a little while to focus on other things, and then I come back and I remember something. I'm like, oh my god, yeah, that is, and this is uh, with far too much buildup. The uh, the sea squirt was <laughs> was was just the the, oh, the best example of what our brains are all about because intuitively you go like smarter is better bigger brain is better and this is like uh, just being smarter just for the sake of it is is going to be the absolute best thing in every situation and it's not asking what is the point of intelligence uh, or uh should we say this this kind of uh, um 
cognitive abilities, this this computation, internal computation in the first place. It's not, uh, the brain's just not burning up a bunch of glucose just for funds, uh, 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 just for kick. That's right. There's always a trade-off. I just said funds and then kick rather than fun and kicks. Fun and kicks. Uh, so that was fun for me listening to myself screw up like that early on in this podcast that's a moment where i'd be like oh you really screwed it up i've been doing it for four years and now i'm amused when i make little mistakes like that okay. i'm growing i'm, glad you were the I'm first growing one as to a do person. it <laughs> <laughs> well done <laughs> pressure's off now Ooh. okay all right <laughs> so, the, but the C-square, you know, it's it's a really fun example that brains are for behavior. Yeah. And if you don't need a brain, you know, why 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 are you going to put in all of that effort in maintaining such costly tissue? Um, and so, the lesson of the C-square made me think a lot about pregnancy because it ends hmm. up that. Well, you're going to tell people what the C-square. Oh, I'm sorry. Is and does, right? That's I'm gonna, so, I thought no, they all that's knew my, already. <laughs> no, no. This is my job as the host to make sure that uh, that the audience knows what you're talking about. So the sea squirt's a little animal, and for the first part of its life, it's looking for a rocky substrate or structure to find a home and attach to. And so it's got to navigate to find a suitable habitat, and it's got this great little brain to do it and figure out, you know, let's go this way, let's go that way, and just uh, detecting the environment and um, and looking for a home. But once it finds a home and once it attaches to the rocky surface, uh, it typically never moves again. And so now the systems that it needed in order to navigate doesn't need anymore because it's going to get food as it passes by. Um, it's not going to need to look for very much. Um, and so it eats its brain. That's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it would happen in a, you know, a cartoon fashion a lot more awesome than it is. It just absorbs. All the tissue just doesn't get used and it gets broken down and absorbed to be used for other functions. But it's just still such a mind-blowing concept. Yes. This thing had a brain. It went through all of the, the... hard evolutionary work i'm now not really speaking about evolution in the correct way but it went through all of the trouble uh, of of uh having selected for this complicated machinery just to then go and uh, uh absorb it but you see that a lot um you see that a lot with a, with different types of behaviors and adaptations uh, that might not seem uh as odd as eating your brain, but there. But, but let me just get to the eating your brain because humans actually mm-hmm. do also eat their brain um, during a particular period of time. And so it ends up that during what? pregnancy, I know it's uh, a little bit strange. Just, it's not really it, eating it, your brain. Is it called the it's zombie not, period? Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> yes, it happens twice, I guess now. Um, but the first time, what I'm talking about is that when women are pregnant, it ends up that part of their their brain matter it actually. Uh, decreases. Don't quote me on which type, but it's they've taken oh, scans. Oh, uh, already quoted. Already quoted. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but you, they've taken scans and it actually decreases. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, you, you talk about mommy brain and how women who are uh, pregnant or just after they have a child, they have what's called mommy brain. Like, we just forget everything. And it's just really hard to... It, you're just not up to the level you were prior to getting pregnant. 
uh, and having a baby. And part of the reason could be that over our species evolutionary history, kind of during this phase of our of female uh, lives, it paid to reduce the investment in brain structures in order to increase investment in, oh, I don't know, producing a child mm -hmm. <laughs> and growing a whole other organism or uh, upping the immune system and making sure that other, other things were being, other functions were being catered to rather than, you know, remembering this person's name <laughs> or, uh, or, or, or silly things. And yeah. so, yeah, you do definitely see over the lifetime different adaptations Come, turning on and turning off. So pregnancy would be one example of when humans or women eat their brain. And well, and, and there's, I mean, the, just the different, all different regions and structures of the brain can atrophy when they're not being used. If you, if you have a, uh, start using your GPS and are using that to navigate around everywhere, some of those systems are going to start atrophying a little bit not not delegating it or uh, and, and not uh not using as much energy as say it's if a you're question. a taxi driver it's a good question where, <laughs> where where that region of the brain it seems to be um lit up more and has more growth whatever region that i can't remember the name of um it's a good question whether it's actual you know brain matter and brain stuff versus mm. you know versus the the representation the information that's being stored on that brain stuff mm -hmm. um which would be more brain stuff but in but in any case it's the question of whether are you growing neurons or neurons and dendrites atrophying and so forth versus is just the pattern of firing changing over time so mm. it's a good question i don't know you'd have to ask a neuroscientist mm. I I do I feel like uh I feel like there's a certain situation like it, just for everyone where um thinking a lot in the traditional sense isn't necessarily the most helpful strategy in a given situation. I did a lot of factory work uh for a while that was exceptionally repetitive mm -hmm. and uh <laughs> and kind of the the more uh, I would sit and have these, um, f wonderful, you know, uh, sitting there pontificating about, uh, this, uh, philosophy and the meaning. Meanwhile, I'm just stuck in this factory doing this same, same job over and over again. And me thinking too much about life almost made me just miserable and made me, <laughs> made me made me hate hate my job more whereas and, and now people talk a lot about cognitive ease and all of these flow states where and i, I know it's not the same as talking about eating a, a brain i know that's a, that's a different thing in energy delegation and different neural patterns and blah 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 I'll, I'll, again i'll talk to a neuroscientist <laughs> about that but uh, but not always. Lots of thinking is is moving someone forward in every situation. Sometimes, um, just having like say a simple uh belief or a a little bit of motivation to like go out and uh and uh, like like if I if I'm trying to get myself to uh to go and get through a CrossFit workout or something like that, and I. I have this fantasy of like looking like Brad Pitt one day or something like that. That's going to do, that's stupid. What I would call stupid fantasy outside of reality is going to do a lot more to drive my life 
forward than overthinking like, ah, this is going to suck. Is it going to be like bad for my knees in the long run that I, that I do this? And what the heck is the point of doing all this exercise anyway? And uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Am I making sense? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, But it's just, that is, uh, that C course just had me thinking so much about that, about intelligence and what it's for and, and what the value of it is in, in every situation. Well, I, I'd say in general, it's, it's a super interesting question. You bring it up in terms of the C-squirt and intelligence, but mm-hmm. the trade-offs for any particular feature, to what extent would you, I mean, why intelligence? Why do we have the abilities we do? Why didn't evolution invest in an, an even better immune system? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, food finder, mm-hmm. or habitat selector, or something like that, or mate choice, you know, like, wh- why not invest in real estate in those areas versus the intelligence? And so when you think how strange it is that we're intelligent, and you put it in, in that way of, of saying it, effort could have been put into all these other systems, but it wasn't, it was put here as well, there must be some benefit to being able to, to perform these particular functions. Hmm. Yeah, like I, I don't want to uh, make you recoil right now and talk about consciousness. Um, <laughs> you just recoiled. Um, <laughs> I, I sometimes I don't always, and I'll stay on target. We'll we'll keep with your Excuse book. Me. Don't worry. Check please. <laughs> I, I know, but. Uh, and and you can take a pass if you want to. That's fine. But let me just try to oversimplify. These these are it's something that a lot of people care about. And I don't. No one's going to hold you to like. Uh, well, uh, Deborah said this about conscious. This isn't in her book. This is. I'm putting her on the spot unnecessarily right now. We're just shooting the breeze we're not we're, we're not going to talk about data or whatever for a half second there it seems like there must be some sort of a um assessment uh going on consciousness it must be some sort of a uh observer of of kind of figuring out which of these various programs is being the u- most useful in uh, in a given moment, and and there must be some sort of feedback going in that's that's feeding information back into the system. Like it doesn't to put the energy into something that we whatever it, maybe we don't have consciousness, and this is this is some lie that we're telling ourselves. But whatever it feels like to have it seems shockingly costly and like how how would you go about evolving something like that in the first place what the what is the purpose of it has do you even have like any ideas uh, about it that that you sometimes think about that you found interesting that you you've seen anyone else have a take on that resonates uh with you or would you just like to move on and talk about eating behavior so i study kin um um I think it's a really interesting question about what it is, if it's as much as people say it is. Yeah. So I haven't, so I've read a lot about it and I can see the schools of thought that there's this extra thing 
that is the consciousness. And then I've read, you know, Dan Dennett, who has explained it away. Right. Um, I, well, first and foremost, I don't know. Uh, and But I my approach into the question would really focus in on the circuitry in, in the sense of not the hardware, the software, and in terms of what is the information processing structure of a system. So for instance, if you could engineer a robot and design a robot to have the full complement of human adaptations, mental adaptations, um, and for instance, if you were able to identify all the mental adaptations, how they fit together in human psychology, and then mirror that in artificial intelligence and build a robot to do all these things, the question is, would that robot now be conscious? Mm-hmm. And in some sense, if it's all information processing, then yeah, the robot would be conscious. Mm-hmm. If there's something, you know metaphysical to all of this stuff, or if there's something just special to actually having neurons versus silicon chips and some byproduct of having neurons versus silicon chips, and maybe it wouldn't. Mm. But I have to say that I, I find, so it's a very interesting topic. No, I actually don't agree with that. I actually find it less and less interesting mm-hmm. the more and more I think about the software programs of the mind. Mm-hmm. I think we know so little about human adaptations, human mental adaptations that, you know, we're asking such a big question uh, that we're just not ready to, to answer. Um, but I love that answer. Okay. I think that's a terrific answer. One, you said uh, uh, a scientist's three favorite words, which is I don't know, which is... That's my I husband's think... favorite words, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think that is just an uh, important reminder because I, I try to also help people understand what science is and what it's all about and how it's a bit of a different way of thinking than than what sometimes um, comes naturally to us because you don't hear a lot of I don't know happening out there. You, you hear a lot, of, a, a lot of people being like, I know exactly why this is. And oftentimes, the more sure of themselves they are, uh, the more incorrect uh, they are as well. And so I just, I think that's a really um, useful reminder for listeners that that uh, the, the people thinking the most about this stuff and doing it in all the right ways are also the ones saying, I don't know more than anyone else. And saying, I don't know, um, can be more helpful than it seems. It, it seems scary to say, I don't know something. But uh, Actually, I think it's scary to say, I know something. Uh yeah, but you're a scientist. Yeah, I guess. So you've been you've retrained yourself in that way. I don't think that the general public is that same way. Although people are like they don't want to do stand up or something like the idea of like everyone thinks they're really funny, but they don't want to be put to the test. They don't want to like the idea of actually getting up there and saying is is a different thing. But it, I don't know. I I'm not sure where I'm going with this at the wherever moment. you want. But uh, yeah. Um, well, it doesn't matter. So, <laughs> let, uh, all right. <laughs> let's, Consciousness? Let's, yeah, What's yeah. That, What follows that? Uh, well, uh, so let's break it down. Like you said, the, th- the things that you find um, uh, more interesting to study because we have, we have a long ways to go before talking about these huge questions like consciousness. Though I think there's, uh, there, there's a bit of 
taking a step back to have a holistic look at things, even if it's speculative, is uh, is still helpful. But um, we're still trying to figure out why we like to eat the things that we like. How's that for a smooth transition, huh? Perfect. So, uh, so this is an, another one of these things that, uh, speaking of I don't know, and we've talked about the illusion of explanatory depth before on the show, you go... Why do you like that food? And people will will give you an answer. I would give you this uh, an answer happily. Like, why did I why did I like the uh, steak and eggs I had today? Well, uh, because I I like meat and and I was if I wanted to ask uh, like overly complicated. Well, maybe it's because I was raised to like eggs and and so that's why i like eggs but there's a whole lot more going on in our food selection choice uh i mean why not we did an episode about dung beetles recently why why not uh why not just eat up a bunch of waste out there so no one else is using it go up go up and and gobble up this these beetles seem happy enough <laughs> with it and it's free it's just sitting out there waiting for us but that doesn't seem appealing to anybody why is that not most people not most people <laughs> individual differences aside personality we're about right <laughs> larger patterns here and so yeah so so disgust and food so when you pick up a piece of candy or you have your steak and eggs it's you why do you why are you eating this because it's yummy it tastes good and you could stop there, but you kind of would only scratch the surface as to, well, what's causing that yumminess? Um, and why is it that you find that yummy and not the dung uh, that's, you know, over there on the floor? Um, but why does that dung beetle find likely find the dung really yummy and not your steak and eggs? Um, and so these the question would be, what is it about the circuitry that is different in dung beetles than humans that makes us like certain things versus uh, versus what they like? And when I started, so I've been interested in disgust for a while, and I came to the topic of disgust through kinship. Um, not saying that my family disgusts me in general. <laughs> I'm saying that when you detect individuals as kin, one of the systems that should be attached to that is a sexual aversion system uh-huh. so that you don't find them sexually attractive. I should say I don't have any brothers, so it makes it very easy to do this kind of work, at sure. least on siblings. And so when I was thinking about what kind of system was regulating sexual aversion, the emotion of disgust just seems very natural. It's very, I mean, so any thought experiment, you know, imagine tongue kissing your brother or sister and you just, yuck, yuck, gross. And so it was very easy to identify disgust in this way. And that's not even saying that my brother might be a fantastic tongue kisser. He might have a wonderful technique, yet, yet I have zero inclination. I wish you laughed out loud instead of covering your mouth so that the audience could hear how much these jokes are crushing it right now. <laughs> okay. Exactly. It's terrible to you and you study disgust and you and you know why. <laughs> you, you understand the machinery. All right. So where I was okay. So that's why I got I, interested I like, in disgust. I like throwing a disgust researcher with with the I'm too disgusting for a disgust researcher. <laughs> See, it's one thing to know something intellectually, it's another thing to practice it. Yes. <laughs> oh god. 
All right. Where was I? Uh, so disgust, siblings. Yeah. Yes. So tongue, tongue kissing my siblings. Or... Yes. No, it's it's every everyone individual differences aside. Basically, everyone feels about the exact same way. Yes. They would have very little interest in that. Not only that, but they would they would probably feel a little uh, yeah. something in their stomach, something going on there. So. So that's how I got interested in Disgust, mm-hmm. is that it seemed like a very good program that caused avoidance of sex with family members. But that was a very different type of disgust than researchers have be- had been focusing on. Not that they hadn't acknowledged this function of disgust, but they have been focusing on uh, disgust as avoider of contaminants. So steering clear of disease-causing substances or substances that were likely to get you sick, like blood, guts, and gore. Mm-hmm. things that would have bacteria, viruses, things that could really make you sick. And so a lot of researchers, so building on the work of Paul Rosin and Jonathan Haidt uh, was one of the early re- researchers in this area, and they identified a variety of different uh, elicitors of disgust. And one of the things that, in my mind, united a lot of their different categories, so they had disgust based on, you know, so what elicits disgust? Death, uh, poor hygiene, certain foods, certain animals, uh, uh, body products, body envelope envelope violations. They just meant amputations or, you know, eyeballs that are, you know, without a head. Mm-hmm. And um, but it seems as if a lot of those things all are different. <laughs> that eyeballs missing a head. Was just, a just perspective. Strange way of phrasing it. I, I was talking with this uh, this French lady recently, and she had um, this adorable way of phrasing. So she was she was trying to talk about. She was trying to say amputee, and she goes, "He was um." How do you say uh, one arm less? <laughs> that's like very, a, that's so nice. I know. <laughs> I surrender. <laughs> um. <laughs> I surrender. Well done. Okay. Um, so researchers like Rosin and Haidt had mm. found, look, a lot of these things, or, or at least I was noticing a lot of these things that they say elicit disgust were all associated with disease-causing organisms. Have you ever been to the, what's that museum in Philly? It's like the, the there's some freakish museum in Philly where there's like heads and fermented jars and all this weird, and like Siamese twins and stuff. It's like, anyway. But actually, so, in in Amsterdam, where I, I I was this summer, they had a, a museum of microbes, mm. or like you know where they could show you all these little small parasites, and they had them life size. They even made like what do you call it? like little dolls of them that you could buy and take home. Hmm. That was gross. I didn't go in. Oh, I've seen those little dolls. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. I think they're kind of cute. Yeah, you can get yourself a little AIDS stuffed animal. I think I got one uh, once. I I did get one. I know I got one. <laughs> so now I'm defending my choices from back then. This is years ago. I was a different person. I liked diseased stuffed animals back then. Uh, but but there, this is like something that some people kind of uh, fetish enjoy yeah. in, a, in a way. But it, but it's also. Uh, well, it's like a curiosity. It's not so much like a 
it, it, it's just it's just something there's something like very salient about the experience of of seeing one of these things and the emotions that rise up and i think that's what people are after they're they're so i mean why do people rubberneck on the side of the road when there's an accident mm-hmm. and there's a body i mean if you think about it just wasn't all that common to see a dead human body i mean you did over your i'm talking ancestrally hunter-gatherer yeah. kind of thing yeah, people died and you might might have seen people with, you know, who had been physically harmed. But those were rare moments and never more, just like with a head one place and a body and But those place. are information gathering right. moments like, you know, what 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 is involved in this here and mm. what does this look like? What are these substances? And so I think we are specifically tuned to, you know, attending to those types of events or those kinds of museums because they're so rare uh, mm-hmm. and they are potential information gather to our neural circuitry that's trying to gather information about these really rare but really um, but events that would have been significant uh, mm-hmm. potentially to understand and, and see. I don't know. I had a I'm very blabbing. hard time with it. With a like, museum? With yeah, the, yeah, I had a really, really, really hard time with it. Like, I just, I couldn't, uh, I was not, and some people were very fascinated. So we all have these different levels. Different of, thresholds, different, different settings, thresholds. as you said. Yes, yeah. um, and so I completely, I know I'm talking about disgust, but I forgot exactly why. So I'll just kind of. Well, with eating. But, well, oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. We've come no, far no away from eating. So. The idea that disgust does a variety of things. If it keeps you away from substances that uh, harbor disease or you can get, you know, things that are contaminated, it also seems to have this really interesting role in in mate choice, causing you to avoid having sex with people who you find sexually unattractive. So with these two very different functions and same emotion, I was very curious as to how it was organized. Mm-hmm. And when you think about disgust, one of the very first functions really is about consumption. And I can't say that I, I I haven't come up with this. In fact, it was Paul Rosin who made a very big deal about food psychology and was one of the people who noticed that if you open up a Psych 1 textbook and you were to kind of leaf through the contents, you really wouldn't find very much on on consumption or food, even though it's something that is so much part of our life and is a huge part of our psychology. Um, and so, Food's all the rage these days. The I've rage. heard of this stuff. People are loving it. They're <laughs> really into it. Multiple times a day sometimes taking this stuff in. They're addicted, you might say. Indeed. Um, and so when I started thinking about food and disgust, I had originally just thought, oh, well, we have this system that assesses what is the chance that this piece of food here has bacteria or things that could harm me in it. And so maybe you use certain cues, the smell of it, the look of it, the feel of it, in order to determine this likely has. So, you know, you pick up a moldy piece of fruit and it feels mushy and you're just like, yuck, I'm not going to eat that. And so what 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 are you reacting to? Chances are you're reacting to the fact that there's mold in there and then that could have led to other types of bacteria getting in there and so forth. You're detecting the breakdown of plant cell walls and and it could be harmful to consume. When you see maggots and when you see, you know, rot on meat, this is Mm. also telling you potentially that it's harmful to consume. And so we're using this information. And so I had always, I started off um, one of the first versions of one of the chapters in the book was really just focusing on disgust as it relates to food and only disgust as it relates to food. And then I, when you, but when you start thinking about it, 
when you look at a piece of food, you're not just making a decision up or down based on disease-causing organisms or the cues of contamination. You're also assessing, well, hang on a second. What's the sugar content of this? What's the salt content? What, you know, protein and, and so forth. Does it have any plant toxins? And so it became very clear to me that detecting pathogens and disease-causing organisms, the typical elicitor of disgust, was only one of a set of inputs to the food system. Mm -hmm. And so if I thought that disgust was regulating how you view a piece of food and assess its value of consumption, well, what? how did sugar and salt and protein and fats, how did all that else get in there? That, that And so what we tried to do in one of the chapters is think from first principles of if I were to try and design and engineer a system to determine what is the suitability of any substance to consume, what would it look like? It would consider things far beyond just disease-causing organisms. It would have to integrate across the range of sugars and salts and proteins, fats, plant toxins, and, and, and microorganisms. And that is what fleshed out this view of disgust as a system regulating yumminess versus yuckiness mm -hmm. in terms of what to eat. So have you ever had the – have you ever experienced when you go to a, a big buffet, a, you know, a Chinese buffet or whatever, they have some great ones here, and you eat – you walk in the door and you're starving and everything looks good and everything looks really yummy. But by the time you leave, you know, the place, you – the idea of eating one more piece of sushi or one more little brownie for dessert, you're just like, I'm going to barf. I feel disgusted. The question is, what, what, are, you, what are you feeling right there? You're using the, kind, the same terms that we use in order to avoid feces and things that seem contaminated, but it's not contaminated so much. Why are you using that same language of disgust? And what we tried to map out is – how it is you're still using disgust and the idea that your expected value of consuming the next piece of food is that low that it's starting to get into the disgusted arena. Now, obviously, it's not as intense as if I tried to feed you some maggots. Mm -hmm. But by design, maggots are going to be very much more harmful than that next brownie. Like, I could incentivize you to eat that next brownie, mm -hmm. right? Come on, just one more. Right. Um, but it looks like it is on a, a zero-sum scale. You can almost think of it as a sliding scale of, you know, extremely yummy, so scrumptious would kill to eat it versus, oh, my God, if I ate that, I'd have to kill myself kind of thing. Right. And so um, – but when you're gorged and you're you're totally stuffed, the idea that you – any – there's low value in, in anything to consume no matter mm -hmm. how fresh and gourmet it might be. So it's all part of the disgust system. So you're assessing its sugar content, the salt, the protein, fat, whether it plant, has plant toxins in it, microorganisms, and you're figuring this out through various cues, none of which you're really conscious of. You're just mm -hmm. saying, hey, that looks good. That smells yummy. Um, and yeah. making a decision based on your own need level whether or not you're going to consume it. And so that's the the larger discussed picture when it comes to consumption. Yeah, and we we uh, all just had a episode about sati satiation recently and and the many kind of uh testable primes for you can get people to count the number of swallows they have or whatever and they'll feel full faster. That's sort of Is that true? Yeah, yeah. And uh plate size is a 
is a variable. There's a there's a lot of other interesting things like that that I can I can tell you all about while we're off the air. This is as good a spot as any to stop the first episode, which we've already it's usually meant to be an hour. We're already going over. We have a whole nother episode <laughs> to go. This is going as well as I hoped it would go, and I I hope uh, I hope you listeners are interested i mean if you aren't i don't understand uh why you listen to this podcast <laughs> uh but maybe you're interested in completely other i think this is endlessly fascinated uh, fascinating if you listen to this podcast i'm sure you're uh loving every bit of this episode so make sure and check out the uh the book objection discussed morality and the law and you can get it and then by the time part two for you rolls around next week maybe you'll be way ahead of us maybe you'll have already uh finished the book but make sure and get it there's a lot to dig into there's so many things that i i passed by already because i was like we got to keep the subject moving we have we haven't even got gotten into morality yet which we're going to be talking about in part two and and how some of these same uh mechanisms that that uh, uh that we're using to evaluate our food we're using to evaluate our our sense of right and wrong in the world so stay uh tuned not stay tuned what's the proper i need to figure we need to change the come back the, the uh, come back <laughs> next week there we go click, Thanks. <laughs> click, click again <laughs> click again next week and and join us for part two of uh this episode on the book objection discussed morality and the law and deborah i have my guests each week plug a uh charity of of their choice to encourage uh giving out there in the world so uh so what's yours what did you have in mind so i'll select fire the foundation for individual rights and education fantastic and uh thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people and make sure and check out next week's episode it's going to be fantastic everyone that was such a fun episode if you enjoyed it as much as i liked making it please make sure and rate on itunes make sure and leave a nice review on stitcher any whatever platform that you're using to listen to this it means a whole lot to me and i go through and read them and uh and it brightens my day and keeps me going i hope that one day i know enough about every one of these subjects that we cover on the podcast that i can have uh such a well-informed and fun conversation like you just heard and and that's that's the hope that's the direction uh that we're going with the podcast and if you want to support that journey you can help me out going to patreon.com slash shane moss you can uh donate uh whatever you can each month that money goes towards we just added we keep on adding more things i'm i'm maybe going to get on instagram and have someone help me out with that and and uh I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Uh, and then, but we're like cutting episode highlights out to play on other podcasts to get more listeners. And so all of that, that's just a little more money than that's where the Patreon goes to supporting this podcast, to helping it grow. Uh, but, but really those ratings and reviews, um, I haven't plugged that in a while. 
So please, they, they really do uh, help me keep going. If you enjoyed today's podcast, uh, that positive reinforcement makes all the difference in the world. We mentioned psychedelics on the podcast, so I might as well mention that the Jamaica retreat is filling up fast for next April 6th through 13th. We might add another one around that time. Haven't decided yet. And also, uh, like I said, I pitched, I told you about this originally. Uh, I said that this is an incredible deal, and I didn't really know how they were pulling this off uh, financially because you get your your meals and accommodations and everything. It's an all-inclusive thing. You get a massage. You get all this stuff along with the psilocybin-assisted therapy and hanging out with me and seeing shows and, and I'm a part of the integration pro- process and helping you set intentions and all that good stuff, especially if you're new to psychedelic. It's all varying experience levels. Well, the prices have already gone up because it's. Uh, I think they were doing the math incorrectly. It was like real Shane Moss optimistic math uh, <laughs> like I, I like to do where I then realize that I'm not making enough to cover everything. So they've increased their, uh, their charges for a uh, retreat and I'm telling you that not to deter you, but because I think it's going to happen again. I think these retreats, the reason why I keep on doing these um, and partnering with MycoMeditations, go to MycoMeditations.com, is because I think this is absolutely going to take off. I've, ha- I've seen people's lives completely change right in front of me. And that's why I put myself out there and, and continue to do these uh, as well. And so it's, it's been a, a really interesting, uh, cool thing to be a part of. And I highly recommend it. And you can hear more about that. You can go back to the Here We Are podcast. I think it was episode 165 where we talked about micro-meditations. So uh, just throwing that out there, giving you some updates, uh, encouraging you to give some positive feedback on, on iTunes, Stitcher, and all those various platforms out there. I appreciate it so much. So those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Today's outro music brought to you by the Multiple Cat.